So if you would, uh, please stand, and I'm going to read from the Gospel of John our passage this morning, and it's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Approaching John's gospel is a bit like listening to a symphony orchestra. With the strings and the woodwinds and brass and percussion sections all at work, it can be imposing. Most of us probably know that John's gospel is is not quite like the others. As we listen, it takes us along to it, it doesn't take us long to discover the themes and the variations can be somewhat elusive, as we've noted last week. Yet, although the, the score is hard to read and there is syncopation at times, this symphony of truth is not meant to scare us off. That being said, we're going to need to listen in and listen closely. A passive listener will leave disinterested or discomposed. At best, we might miss some dynamics, and at worst, well, we might, we might fail to follow the conductor Therefore, as we begin this symphony, that is John's gospel, let us listen closely and discover three movements, and this is our thesis this morning, three movements that reveal who Jesus is in order that we might declare his worth. Now, before I give you the title of our first movement, uh, you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to explain a little bit of our text this morning. Uh, John opens his gospel with this very familiar phrase, in the beginning, in the beginning. Now, we know this phrase is used at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. We're familiar with it. It's the very first words found in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no doubt that John, a Hebrew himself, is making a link here between the Old Testament and the gospel or his gospel. The beginning that John speaks of is absolute. It is a total beginning. It's not the beginning of one thing. It's not the beginning of a song or a symphony. Uh, in fact, it is the beginning of all things that John is speaking to. It's the beginning of history. We might even say the root of the universe. In this opening sentence, John is stressing the phrase, in the beginning. It's pushed to the front, you might say. Uh, he's not focusing on the subject, the word. John is not answering the question, who was in the beginning? That's not the question he's answering up front. Of course, the answer to that would be God, and he will get to that. But the question he wants us to to answer at first is, since when was the word? And the answer to that question is, since all of eternity was the word. The verb suggests neither a completed state nor something coming into being. What the verb suggests And what John is declaring is that the word is eternal. It's an eternal word. It, if we over-translated the verse, we would say it continually or the word continually was. There was never a time when the word was not. And there was never a thing that did not depend on him for its existence, Leon Morris says. 
The word existed before creation and therefore was itself not created. Said negatively, there was never once when the word was not. If we're familiar with the Genesis record, and I think most of us are, then of course we would expect the phrase, in the beginning God. We'd expect that here. Uh, Yet that is not what John writes. He writes, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And it's this word that not only was, but was with God. Literally, the word was toward God. John wants us to understand there's no conflict between the word and God. There's no division. There's no struggle for power. The whole existence of the word is oriented toward the Father. The word is with God in place and company, but also in disposition and orientation. Like a symphony orchestra with all its sections playing in perfect unison and at equal tempo, so the word was with or toward God. Yet there's even more in this phrase, and the word was with God. To say this is to move from origin to character. Yes, he was with God, but also in character as well. The word not only existed in the beginning, but did so in the closest connection with the Father. This demonstrates, of course, the unity and the diversity found between the Word and God. To say that God, to say the Word was with God is to differentiate between the two. The Word is not an emanation or a projection from God. The Word is not the one God in a certain form or in a certain mode. The Word is distinct from God, yet He is with God. And the Word was not only with God, but the Word was was God. The Word was God. And here we have an early crescendo. The Word was divine. Anything we say about God, about His character, about His attributes, may rightly be said about the Word. To speak of the Word is to speak of God. To speak of God is to speak of the Word. In verse 2 we read, He was in the beginning with God. Now, this melody sounds very similar to the first verse, yet something new is offered. He, he was in the beginning. And so the pronoun points back to the word, but yet it points forward to something. It points forward to God in a human form. And of course, John delays much of those details all the way down, you know, it's not until verse 17 where we actually see who this person is until he's named. And so we read in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Thus, in the beginning was Jesus Christ. Jesus was with God Jesus was God, and finally, Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. And so, here's our first movement. Jesus is our God. If Jesus was with God before time began, and if Jesus is our God, then it follows that God was always like Jesus. Do you ever think God is only holy and just and stern and avenging, kind of that Old Testament portrayal of God. 
And then somehow in, in the Bible, Jesus enters in and kind of changes everything. Maybe you've had that idea or that notion or heard of it. I think that's a common way to think of things. But friends, the Bible knows nothing of such attitude. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. What this passage and the whole of the Bible affirms is that God always has been like Jesus. God and Jesus are not some kind of yin and yang, and when brought together, offer some kind of balance to this world. I mean, we're familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world in this way, that he sent his unique son. It was God who sent his son. Jesus and God... Jesus and God are not playing good cop, bad cop. What Jesus did was, you might say, open a window in time in order that we might see the eternal, unchanging love of God. Or with the symphony metaphor, you know, I don't know what the, the term is for the first chair that stands and does the, the fancy violin thing. Whatever that is, that could maybe be Jesus if we were to carry the metaphor Hebrews 9.26 says, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We read from Hebrews 1 last week. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, again, that window opens, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, image of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.18, as we'll study later, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. To know Jesus is to know God. If Jesus was with God before time, then there has always been an intimate connection between the two. This means there, there is no one who can teach us what God is like, what God's will is for us, what God's love and heart and mind are like, as Jesus can. I know many of you have been friends for years, uh, even for decades, some of you. If we wanted to discover something about someone, we wouldn't ask a mere acquaintance. Uh, we would go to an intimate friend. Now, many of us were celebrating Danny's ministry last night, and, you know, I wasn't asked to MC. Now, I love Danny. I know Danny. I like Danny, but I wasn't asked to MC. I don't, I don't, I don't have the kind of relationship that Daryl has with Danny. And so Daryl is the one that's asked to MC or to, to bring some thoughts uh, to Danny or for Danny. Daryl is not an acquaintance or a fast friend. He's more than that. He's a person who knows which, bu which buttons to push. Uh, sometimes the ones that hurt, but the ones that help. And so using very human language, John is saying that Jesus is so intimate with God that he knows what buttons to push. There's no secrets between them. There is only perfect companionship. Jesus is the one person in all the universe who can reveal to us what God is like and how God feels towards us. Barclay reminds us. 
Now, I'm, I'm embracing the thread of redundancy here. Uh, John wants us to see the word Jesus with the same character and quality and essence and being as God. When John see, says the word was God, he was not saying that Jesus is identical with God. He is saying that Jesus is so perfectly the same as God in mind, in heart, in being, that in Jesus we perfectly see what God is like. Have I established that Jesus is God? I hope so. That's the point. I hope, hopefully the logic tump, you know, topples you over. Jesus is our God. And so having established that, we have to address the, the, the title that John uses, this word, word, the logos. Why does John use this title, logos? He could have said, he could have used lots of other titles, Jesus Christos. He could have used Jesus Christ's name, but he doesn't. He says Logos. Why does he do that? Well, here's a short answer, and then I'll give you the long answer, because I'm a pastor, and that's what we do. Uh, so here's the short answer, that both the Jewish and Greek readers would find great interest in exploring the concepts of the Logos. It would have sparked their, their, their interest, it would have caught their ear. And so for the Jew and the Greek in John's day, the term is loaded with meaning. Maybe not so much for us in our day, but in their day for sure. And so for the Greek, the word logos denotes something like the soul of the universe. It was the, the rational pervading principle of the universe, a, a kind of creative energy with reason at the center. All things came from this creative center and all people derive their wisdom from the logos. It's the stabilizing principle of the universe. It's not a person, of course. It's a principle in the Greek mind. It's a force, you might say. It, and it's the supreme principle of the universe. It was the source that originated and publicized and directed all things. Thus, to use the term logos is, as I've said, to catch the Greek ear, to, take their, to, to grab their attention. Now, even if the average Greek person was unfamiliar with the philosophical concepts behind this term, again, to speak of the term would draw their interest. To speak of the logos is to speak of something important. Similarly, if we heard someone speaking of quantum physics, we, we might not understand all the complexities of quantum phys physics, of which I know very little about, but we would know that they're speaking of principles that are foundational to the universe. And so, it might catch our interest, catch our ear. For the Jew, well, John is not a Greek. He's a Hebrew. And so, and he's certainly not a Greek philosopher. So John, as a Jew, a Hebrew, this term, therefore, is unmistakably Hebrew. It is a Hebrew term. We've already exposed the, the Jewish atmosphere kind of in this first verse. You know, in the beginning was the word, which is an allusion again to, to Genesis. So we, we already see that the Hebrew mind is very interested in this. And so as students of the Old Testament, we know that God's word is inseparably connected to his powerful activity in creation, in revelation, and in deliverance or salvation. We see that throughout the Old Testament. The word was inseparably connected to creation, Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, 
We're familiar with the Genesis narrative. Genesis 1.11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Psalm 33.6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The word was inseparably connected to Revelation. Jeremiah 1.4, now the word came to the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah speaks, Isaiah 9, 8, the Lord, was, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Ezekiel 33, 7, so you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me, says the Lord. The word is inseparably connected to creation, to revelation, and also deliverance or salvation. Psalm 107, 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And in that passage in Isaiah 55, he's talking about deliverance for, for Israel. His word is gonna go forward, forward and it's gonna deliver the nation of Israel. Carson writes, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. Now, I do like that quote, but I am a little bit bothered by Carson's personification, the idea of it being a personification. That does bother me a little bit. And this is where I believe, although the term is certainly a Greek term and the term is certainly a Hebrew term, I think John is, is doing something very unique here. He's kind of making it his own term. It's his own thing. And so, again, he might tip his hat to the Greek, tip his hat to the Hebrew, but John has in, something, in mind something new. For John, the logos is something richer, deeper, and fuller. For him, the word is not a principle, but a living being. And not a personification, but a person. As so, the Logos is not entirely a Greek term or entirely a Hebrew term. It's a Johannine term or a John, it's John's term. It's John who originated the title. And in fact, he's the only one that uses it. Nobody else uses this title for Jesus in all of the Bible. John is the only one that calls Jesus the Word or the Logos. It's John's Logos that is called faithful and true in Revelation 19.11, and who is called, who he calls in verse 13 of that chapter, the Word of God. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness of Revelation 2.3.14. Moving from there, he's the absolute yes, according to 2 Corinthians 1.19 and 20, and to which the church answers with Amen. He is the Word. The Logos is the revealed mystery of God, according to Colossians 1.27 and 1 Timothy 3.16. Lenski says this, he says, the Logos is the final and absolute revelation of God. The final and absolute revelation of God, embodied in God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the Logos because in him all the purposes, plans, and promises of God are brought to final focus and an absolute realization. Using a human analogy, 
The book of Hebrews does this. Using a human analogy, the, the way a man speaks reveals his heart. So the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You remember that passage. God has spoken to us by his Son. In all these ways, John uses logos, the word, to gather up the universal saving significance of Christ. He is not the savior of one single people. He's not the savior of the Greek. He's not the savior of the Jew. He is the one hope for the human race. There's a second movement here in this passage, and it's found in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is our second movement. John's tempo is quick here. There's no time for an intermission. He uses no conjunction to introduce this next thought. He just jumps right into it. All things were made through him. John is giving us the first, the first uh, work of the Logos. The first thing the Logos did was create, the creation of all things. And so our second movement is this. Jesus is our creator. It's a sweeping claim. All things were made through him. All things. The construction in the Greek makes this an immense expression. All things in the total sense, from the center of the earth to the furthest reaching galaxy. John stresses the point even further using a little bit of parallelism here. He follows the positive statement with a negative one. Without him was not anything made that was made. It's a little clumsy in the, in the English translation there. John's choice of words is intriguing. Whereas all things, being plural, covers the multitude or mass of everything, the strong singular, not any one thing, points to every individual part of that mass and omits nothing. All things were created through him, and without him there is not one thing that was created or that was made. Colossians 1.16 firms the same. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Two great truths emerge, probably more, but I'll give you two. Two great truths emerge from this verse. Number one, Christianity has always believed in what is called creation out of nothing. It comes from this verse. We do not believe that God worked with some kind of matter or substance to create. We don't affirm that. Nor do we believe that the world started with some flaw that had to be fixed. We believe the world began with God. As Christians, we believe that behind everything there is God and God alone. Christianity has always believed in what is called creation out of nothing. I force myself to not use the Latin phrase because it won't mean anything to you. <laughs> creation out of nothing. Second point, creation has always believed that this is God's world. This is God's world. The Bible does not teach the notion that God is a cos cosmic watchmaker, that he, he set the world in motion and now has nothing to do with it. As we'll see throughout our study of John, God is intimately involved in the world. This is why John so oftentimes uses all these illustrations of light and life and bread. It's very worldly in a sense. Christianity does not believe that God is to blame for the wrongs of this world. 
Christianity believes that what is wrong with this world is due to nothing other than our sin. That's the problem with this world. Yet even though our sin has kept the world from being what it might have been, it's God's world. And therefore, we cannot despise or abuse it. We cannot hate the physical world because, friends, this is God's world. It's his creation. Which is to say, I believe it's a shame when you and I fall into the political trap of our day that suggests that those who preserve and care for the earth are somehow less spiritual. That's a trap we should not fall into. That they're concerned with temporal things and we're concerned with infinite things. It's a false dichotomy. Seeing this world as God's world should give us a sense of value for the world, a sense of responsibility to the world. One man spoke of a child who was taking a walk in the country. When, when she saw some flowers in the woods, she asked, do you think God would mind if I pluck some of his flowers? Now, you know I'm not saying don't pluck the flowers. Of course, pluck the flowers. But at least put them in a vase. <laughs> this is what we need to understand. This is God's world. Because of that, nothing is out of his control. And because, that, because of that, we must use all things in the memory that they belong to God. The Christian does not belittle the world by thinking that it was created by an ignorant and a hostile God. He glorifies the world by remembering that everywhere God is behind it. And he is in it all the time. He believes that the Christ who recreates the world was the co-worker of God when the world was first created. And that, in the act of redemption, God is seeking to win back that which was always his own. Finally, it follows, if this is God's world, well then, the answers, the problems, the answers to the problems of this world are not found in men. They're found only in God. He's the one with a solution. The answer is Christ. The answer is that all men need to turn to Christ to surrender and give their lives to know Christ in the most personal and intimate way. It's only then that we can set our lives in this world in order as God intends. Jesus is our God. He is our creator. And finally, this is our third movement, Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word life is a favorite of John's. We're going to see it over and over again. He uses the word here without the article, which stresses the quality of the word. In him, in the word, was life in the fullest or highest sense. And of course, where is this kind of life found? It's found in him. It's found in the Word. It's found in Jesus. John 5, 40. John cautions some, he, Jesus, excuse me, cautions some of the unbelieving Jews saying, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In the passage that Jesus talks about being the good shepherd in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And again, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says to Thomas in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To say in him was life is to say that life is the very attribute of him, that life corresponds with his being. It's forever inherently in his very essence and absolutely incapable of any subtraction or change. In the beginning was the word, and the word was life. Now, following verse 3 and the thoughts that I shared on creation, life here must be taken in the broadest sense. We might say it's only because there's life in the logos that there's any, any life at all in the world, which is the sense in which John 3 speaks. Yet life, to John, typically refers to eternal life. He almost always means it that way. And so it's very likely that John is using somewhat of a double entendre here, or a double meaning. That life is not just the physical life in this world, but it also refers to eternal life. The life that John speaks of in the first instance, instance is the kind of life that we find throughout this earth from parasites to palm trees to people. But in light of John's purpose for writing this gospel that we would believe, and even in the next phrase, the life was the light of men, John has in mind the spiritual life available through Christ. In this sense, the man who lives without Christ exists... <laughs> but he doesn't know what life really is. He has life, but he doesn't have this kind of life. Jesus is the only person who can make life worth living. He came that people might have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. 10. He died so that people might have everlasting life, John 3.16. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men. Light is another favorite term of John. He uses it often. But what is the meaning of this phrase, life was the light of men? What does that mean? Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Both the psalmist and John affirm that Jesus is the light bringer and light bearer, as Leon Morris says. In John eight twenty, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To speak of light and life in this way is to see them inseparably joined. It's the life that is in the logos that lights up the world and the souls of men. Quote, without the logos and his saving life, we should likewise perish in spiritual darkness. The purpose and task of the light is to enlighten, to bestow upon men the knowledge of the truth. This is what the light does. In verse 5, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light that emanates from the logos, that penetrates the souls of men, shines into the darkness. And this term darkness here just really sums up uh, the dark world and all its hostile forces. We're familiar with the way Paul put it in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
That's the way Paul put it. Thus, the darkness is that hostile power that attempts to resist the light of the Logos. What John says is that the light, the light of Jesus, is shining out into this dark world. Therefore, gospel ministry is always a militant enterprise. It always is. It's light shining into the darkness. To raise the flag of Christ is to invade the territory held by the darkness. It's to challenge the power of the darkness. It's to storm the beaches of the kingdom of darkness. Maybe you're familiar with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, I admit that sounds very dramatic. Uh, Again, it's a militant enterprise. But what do we know about the way that light penetrates darkness? Do you guys do birthdays at your house? Of course you do, right? You light candles. Uh, In our house, we have an island in the kitchen and we Someone will make a cake, usually my wife. We put candles on it, and we stand around the island, and, and all the kids shut all the lights off. You know, it's, it's dark. Um, but yet those little candles have a way of... It's not like the darkness swallows up those candles, but they break forward into the light. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure you have, not all the darkness in the world can extinguish the littlest flame. The light of the world is never once affected by the darkness. The darkness can't swallow up those candles. I don't care how hard it tries. It never will. The eternal, unconquerable life of the eternal word shines on and shines in triumphant power. This is why John can say the darkness has not overcome it. There's no doubt that darkness has made strong attempts to overcome the light, as we're, we know. Jesus reminds us in the, of this in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We know that Jesus was crucified. We even know that uh, John 16, 4, he talks about the attempts from people to snuff out the disciples. And if we're familiar with the book of Acts, we see that. We see martyrdom. But both as the resurrection... And as the advance of the gospel proves, these attempts are without success. For the light shines on. So we have three movements that declare the worth of Jesus. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our creator. And Jesus is our life. I'm not sure if you sense it, but this passage starts with this immense breadth. It's this, it's this immense claim. In the beginning was the Word. It's, it's the wide, one of the widest claims in the, in the Bible, I believe. John brings us to the highest of heights in this phrase. Jesus is our God. He is the Logos. And he takes, you might say, a step towards us in talking about creation. In him, All things were created. So it's as if he's moving from this great breadth of statement to he's just a little closer to us because now he's talking about creation. It's it's as if he moves from the formless and void 
of Genesis to day one. Jesus is our creator. Yet, there's a key change again in verse four. If you're following along, we read Jesus was the light of men. Jesus is our life. John, in five verses, goes from the widest statement possible to this beautiful statement about this word being the light and the life of men, people, us. John conducts the most amazing symphony. In, in light of the theme and variations of John's great symphony, what is our response? How do we respond to this? I'll give you two. And I'm going to be forceful with the first one. Don't tell me that your life has no meaning. Don't tell me that. Our timeless, eternal God created you for a purpose. He gave you life. And being in Christ, you have a unique purpose, meaning, and significance. Knowing Christ and being known by him means we have completeness of being. We have absolute satisfaction. We have the fullness of all good, the possession of all good things. We have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All these are ours. Do you believe this? Now, even if our cravings get the best of us, which they do at times, we have this confidence that all things are working for our good. To rightly see yourself is to understand that your purpose, meaning, and significance are not determined by your first birth. You're Christian. They're not determined by your first birth. Your meaning, purpose, and significance is determined by your second birth. That's what gives you value. Being born again means you and I find our identity in Christ. He is the source of life. He is the way of life and the truth of life. He is the very substance of our life. Look at Paul's phrase, and we know it from Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you see that? He's dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Paul's not finding his identity in who he was before. He was born again. He's saying, that's not me anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. That old man is dead. Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is our God and this is what he's done for us. Second thought, if this is true, then here's my final thought. It's maybe a question. Is he worthy of our worship? I want to end with a illustration, John chapter 12. It's a familiar one. It's a first century picture of worship. It's very foreign to us. It never happened in our day. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What Mary did was humiliating. No way around it. It was humiliating. A woman's hair is her glory. A man's feet, nobody's glory. Judas offered the opinion that to use such a costly resource was wasteful. Jesus rebukes him, but he commends Mary. It's my hope that in listening to these three movements, Jesus as our God, Jesus as our creator, and Jesus as our life, that you and I might declare the worth of the word. Amen.